You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 69 of Girl Speak, our annual celebration for International Day of the Girl. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer with Girl Museum. Today's podcast features many of our junior girls and staff who have visited museums in Europe and the United States to take an in-depth look at how girls are represented in museums. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer-run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. First today is Kate Havard, who recently visited the Avu Pei, or At Your Feet exhibit, exhibition, at the Confluence Museum in Lyon in the UK. Here's her review. I recently visited the Confluence Museum in Lyon to have a look at their most current exhibition, At Your Feet. I was intrigued because I've seen plenty of fashion and trends exhibitions, but mostly at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, who are more known for this sort of thing, and are coincidentally presenting an exhibition at the moment on the history of underwear. The Confluence Museum in Lyon is more of an anthropological museum, a museum of mankind, so an exhibition focused on shoes seemed a little unusual. However, it turns out that it fits in perfectly with their museum. The exhibition is not the biggest just two rooms, but does indeed have shoes from all over the world, and from the 16th century until now. The exhibition suggests how shoes can be both revealing of the person wearing them, and of the society from whence they came. Some of the most interesting pieces were some Inuit boots, still worn today, and embroidered with a multitude of colors and tiny beads, and some crazy shoes from the 1980s. My favorite section, though, was the shoes from Asia. The exhibition recounted the Chinese tradition of foot binding, whereby young girls would have their feet tightly bound so that the feet were so constricted they couldn't grow. This process was usually started between the ages of four and nine, before the arch of the foot was fully developed. The size of the foot apparently was a mark of beauty and gave prestige to the family. However, for the girls, it was probably quite painful and meant that they couldn't move easily, no walking for extended periods, and no running. This practice started in the 1600s, and lasted right up until 1912. I'm quite pleased this no longer takes place. It seems painful to me. Another display showcased Western children's shoes in the 19th century. The children were given exact replicas of the shoes their parents wore, often being far too slim for their young feet. It just goes to show that as young children, and particularly sometimes in the case of girls, as with the foot binding, the expectations and inflictions are set from a young age. All in all, this is a well-put-together exhibition with an interesting range of objects and nicely presented. Definitely worth a see if you're in the Lyon area of France. Next up is Jocelyn Anderson Wood, who visited the Hands-On History Museum in Hull. On Hull's historic Trinity Square, in the middle of the unique Old Town, lies Hands-On History Museum. It is housed in the old grammar school where Hull's most famous son, William Wilberforce, studied. 
It is one of eight museums run by Hull Museums and houses the story of Hull and its people. Due to cutbacks in recent years, it is now only open two days per month. The museum has a mix of collections. Downstairs, there is the Victorian Gallery, a large room set up for schools like an old Victorian schoolroom. It is a hands-on space with things for children to see, smell and touch, such as replicas of Victorian games and clothes. This section of the museum is less didactic than other parts, and more about letting younger visitors explore and learn through imagination and creativity. As such, stories of boys or girls are not so present in this section. Upstairs is the Egyptian gallery, which includes a 2,600-year-old mummy and replicas of treasures from the tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamun. Hull's craftsmen made the, made the replicas for the British Empire exhibition at Wembley in 1924. The gallery is a firm favourite with visitors, but again does not represent girls or boys very much. However, also upstairs is a series of galleries called The Story of Hull and Its People, which covers childhood through to adulthood in Hull from around the 18th century to the 20th century. Girls are well represented in this part of the museum. Visitors have to follow a set route around the exhibition, and it is represented thematically with sections such as childhood, learning and clothing. Before visitors enter the exhibition, they are asked to keep an eye out for one or of two people in the exhibits so that they can track their lives as they grow up in Hull. The people are Elsie or Robert. So, for example, parts of the life story of Elsie pop up in displays and text around the galleries for visitors to follow. From the point the visitors are asked to follow Elsie and or Robert, I would argue that the split of coverage of boys and girls is pretty equal throughout the exhibition. Due to the nature of some of the themes, girls and women are better represented in some areas, for example in home furnishings and no place like home, that at various points have been the female spheres, compared with a section on the old boys' grammar school itself, which has more coverage of boys. As Hands-On History is a social history museum, the exhibits are clothing and everyday objects such as books, tools and toys, but there are also paintings and lots of photographs, particularly on text panels. There is a section on the seamstress, Madame Clapham, who hired teenage girls as apprentices. There is also a section on how Hull's fishing industry affected women and girls, as while the men of the city tended to go away to sea or work on the docks, in the mid-20th century, many of Hull's women worked in fish processing factories. I particularly liked a sweet painting on display of Alderman Crowell and family, dating from around 1665. His four daughters can all be seen on the right side of the painting. One could argue that hands-on history does such a good job of representing women and girls because it has to. It is the story of Hull and its people, and so could not ignore 50% of those people. As hands-on history is a social history museum, it has a place for girls far more than other Hull museums, such as, Mar such as the Maritime Museum or Street Life Museum, which focuses on transport. These more specialist museums have a very poor representation of girls, most because girls do not fit in their narratives. Equally, you could argue that the represent, girls represent are all white British and there is no diversity in terms of girls of colour or nationality. But until quite recently, Hull would have been a large majority white British town and I think it is good that curators have not resorted to tokenism to fit in the stories of girls of colour. Overall, after my visit, I was very impressed by the breadth and depth of representation of girls in hands-on history museum. Through both text and objects, the museum represented girls in an equal way to boys, 
allowing the stories of girls and women as much care and attention as they deserve. Thank you, Jocelyn, for that excellent review. Our third review comes from Devin Allen, who recently visited the Sunken Cities exhibition at the British Museum. I visited the Sunken Cities exhibition at the British Museum in London in July this year and was completely blown away. This temporary BP-funded exhibit showcases the results of the underwater excavations that have so far been made on 5% of the archaeological site. This site covers the underwater trade town of Thonis Herculean and the sunken religious centre of Canopus, both in Egypt. These cities are believed to have sunk over 1,200 years ago, and as such, most of the artefacts have remained astonishingly well-preserved. Women play a huge part in the Sunken Cities exhibition, as Isis was one of the central Egyptian deities during this period in this region. However, first we will explore the 1.5 metre tall, headless statue of Arsinoe, erected following her death by her brother-husband Ptolemy II. This particular statue can be seen halfway around the exhibition and demonstrates a perfect infusion of Greek and Egyptian influences. Arsinoe is represented here as an incarnation of the Greek deity Aphrodite, thus establishing the queen as having a connection to the divine. Ptolemy II was her full brother and third husband, replicating the brother-sister marriage union that was deemed to be the most sacred by the ancient Egyptians. He established the decree of Mendes in 270 BCE, that meant all of the temples in Egypt must have had some form of cult statue of Arsinoe in an attempt to deify her following her death, an act that this statue may well have been a result of. The hard black stone has been polished in order to resemble skin, and despite the body parts that are obviously missing, the rest of the figure has been astonishingly well preserved. Her striding post is both formal and traditional, however the bare shoulders and wet look dress adds an element of sensuality. Moving on from Arsinoe, let's examine one of the representations of Isis, with the cult statue of Osiris lying on a lenonine bed with Isis in the form of a kite. This unique statue depicts an important moment in the legend of the revival of Osiris, where his magical sister-wife Isis restores him from death. This piece is believed to date to around 1747 BCE, and is almost intact despite spending over a thousand years at the bottom of the ocean. The depiction of this moment in Egyptian mythology is something that has been replicated many times, but this particular statue retains an aspect of mysticality, perhaps because of its history at the bottom of the Mediterranean and the fact that it still remains almost perfect. The most ma majestic representation of a woman in the Sunken Cities exhibition can be found as one half of a pair in the statues of a Ptolemaic king and queen. These figures are displayed as a frame around images of their discovery, which provides us with a direct comparison between the condition they were found in and how they are now displayed. These two statues would have been created in order to watch over a king's temple, in much the same way that Ramesses II erected figures of himself at the entrance of the Abu Simbel temple. The queen was found in three separate pieces and is still missing her right shoulder, arm and left knee. Her crown would have been worn by royal wives of the time as a representation of Hathor and Isis, and was made separately to the rest of this statue. This particular figure was repaired in antiquity, which shows that her image was just as relevant in the classical period as it was at its creation. Overall, the Sunken Cities exhibition is completely fascinating to explore. The dark interior and atmospheric lighting not only protect the artefacts, but also add to the experience of being underwater, particularly with the added imagery of the excavations. 
Thank you, Devin. For our fourth review, Monique Brow visited the Georgian House in Edinburgh, Scotland. Here's her review. For International Girls' Day, I visited the Georgian House to see what it was like to be a girl living in the Georgian period. The Georgian House is run by the National Trust for Scotland and located in Charlotte Square, Edinburgh. Charlotte Square was part of the first phase of building for the new town, making it the perfect place to have the Georgian House. There are five floors, but only four are currently open to the public. The attic is the top floor, but it is currently closed. The National Trust for Scotland are currently fundraising to refurbish the attic and open it to the public. Once open, the floor will house the Georgian Day Nursery, which is also the schoolroom, the night nursery, and the nursery maid's room. An activity room will also move to this floor. So this means, unfortunately, a lot of the items related to children and girlhood are not on display at the moment. After you pay your entrance fee, you are guided to start on the second floor. As well as the exhibition and activity rooms, the second floor has a film room. The short film is about the history of the house and its first owners, the Lamont family, who moved in in 1797. The film is a snapshot in time of the year 1810. The film tells us the Lamonts moved to Edinburgh to send their sons to school and to find marriages for their daughters. It also shows us the life of the upper-class girls, who are secluded at home. They learn all they need in the schoolroom or the parlor to run the household and be society ladies. The film shows the Lamont girls to be very fashion-conscious and educated to the standards of the time. They learn skills including dancing, needlework, music, and a little arithmetic for doing household budgets. Mrs. Lamont is the parent concerned with her teenage daughter's marriages and they have dinner parties to invite suitors to meet the girls. At this time, married women are allowed to socialize more freely, but unmarried girls cannot leave the house without a chaperone. This is shown in the film and spoken of on the information card in the parlor. Next to the film room is the activity room. The activity has costumes so you can dress up like a Georgian man, woman, boy, or girl. Young Georgian girls would wear a long, high-waisted dress with a petticoat, stockings, mob cap, and fichu. A fichu is a square handkerchief tucked into the front of their bodice. The teenage girls would wear muslin, high-waisted, empire-lined gowns during the day, and similar-styled gowns made of silk and the like in the evenings. These styles were available to try on over your normal clothes. In the room was also a sampler and some horn books, like the ones Georgian girls would have stitched and all children learned from, for the alphabet and numbers. Georgian children were allowed in the nursery and in the parlor only. Each room in the house had a laminated A4 card with information on how the rooms were used, including where the children would be allowed. Another laminated card would also list information all of, about all of the artwork on display in the room. All of the main family rooms had paintings on the wall. But where children appeared in the paintings, they were mainly represented in an allegorical or mythical way. The parlor is the first restored Georgian room you would enter into. A folder in the room lets visitors flip through contemporary portraits that show what people would wear at the time. This folder included paintings of a girl and a family portrait. All the girls were shown wearing white muslin dresses with a color silk underslip and a matching sash with lace frills at the neckline and sleeves. The underslip and sash was the only color in a girl's outfit. The parlor was a social space, like the lounge is today. Teenage girls would have sat with their mother in the parlor as she received visitors for tea. This was an extension of their education. Next to the parlor was the drawing room, 
where the Lamont daughters would attend dinner parties with their parents to meet potential suitors. The piano and flute in the room would have provided the girls with the opportunity to display their social accomplishments by playing, singing, or dancing. Moving downstairs to the ground floor was the bedchamber, where Mr. and L Mrs. Lamont would have slept. This room had an engraving by Bartolosi showing a woman reading to young children. All other paintings did not feature children. The dining room was also on the ground floor, and was the only other room in the house to have children in the paintings. Unlike the other paintings in the house, the children in these ones were actual people and families. Here there was a family group by John E. D. Touche, a Helen Stewart, Mrs. Colt and her son Adam by David Martin, and the Honorable Helen Colt with her granddaughter Grace by David Martin. These were painted during the reign of King George III. The basement is the last floor in the house to walk through. Down here is the kitchen, storerooms, wine cellar, and servants' quarters. This was the domain of the servants, who were adults and children. The film from the film room spoke of the girls who were in service in the house. There is a teenager named Mary, who started as the scullery maid, and by 1810 is the under housemaid. In the kitchen with the cook is a girl named Jessie, who was sold into service by her parents because they could not afford to feed and keep her. These girls would have worked very long days, sometimes up to 16 hours, and go to bed at midnight. The young servants like Jessie would be tasked with having to carry the cast iron kettles filled with hot water around the house, which were very heavy. They would also carry trays upstairs to the family. These trays had an open side which would be placed against their chests to ensure nothing fell off. If an accident did occur, the broken items came out of their wages. For Jessie being a scullery maid will be her first job, just as it had been Mary's. They were the youngest and least paid of the servants. She would assist in meal preparation, like preparing vegetables and roasting meat. She would clean up after the cook and fetch for her, as well as keeping the kitchen, larder, scullery, and utensils all clean for use. She would add coal to fire first thing every morning, and heat the water for the household and kitchen use. She would clean up after dinner parties as well. A housemaid like Mary was responsible for the upkeep of the household. This included making and repairing linen for the bed, table, and towels, cleaning the furniture and fireplaces, making the beds and fires in each room, opening and closing the shutters in every room, fetching water for the rooms, and emptying the chamber pots. Most of these tasks had to be done before the family woke up. The Georgian servant girl would have had a hard life in the basements of these grand homes. Other positions in the house would have required the hiring of children, but no other positions were recorded during the Lamont's time as owners in the house. The house shows only half of the story of how Georgian children's lives revolved around their home and education. Once the attic restoration is complete, children will be better represented in the house. The girls who lived in the basement would also have had more stories to tell but the downstairs space has components to share with visitors. Overall, the house does display the presence of girls and young women, but this is muted, just like in Georgian times, where girls had no publicly active role in society. I strongly advise speaking to the volunteers in each room or reading the information cards. This is the way you will be able to learn about the role and lives of the children in the house. The film is a great introduction to this, and the volunteer staff in each room are very knowledgeable and helpful. Make the most of them should you visit. I think the house in its present state is very good, but will be excellent once funding for the attic is complete and it can be open to the public. The house has a good balance of sharing the stories of all members who lived in the house, upstairs and downstairs.
Thank you, Monique, for that great review of the Georgian House in Edinburgh, Scotland. Next, we have Scarlett Evans with her review of Museo Picasso in Barcelona. This summer just gone by, I went to Barcelona, and while I was there, I went to visit the Museo Picasso, which houses over 4,000 of his pieces, and was actually the first museum dedicated to documenting and displaying Picasso's work, and actually was the only one created during his lifetime. It was actually established at his own personal request, as Barcelona was fairly important in his career, being the place where he lived during his apprenticeship as an artist, and uh, a place where he was known to have returned multiple times between uh, 1906 and 1934. The works shown in the gallery uh, span from his earlier pieces as a student, which are in a much more traditional style of painting, and kind of move through his blue period, and then finally uh, documenting the development of Cubism. The exhibition I went to see consisted of works he made in the latter decades of his life around... 1963 to 72 when he was about uh, 70 or 80 years old and here he takes a sort of relatively uh, traditional artistic material and method of etching and engraving and combines it with motifs that have recurred throughout his work and are indeed fairly um, classical subject matters of the female nude man as the voyeur and also the brothel as a place of action. So the exhibition has uh, 156 engravings and pretty much all of them uh, depicted naked women and I think the word naked is more appropriate than nude here because they're not uh, in the more uh, traditional style of uh, female nudes in, they weren't you know demurely stretched out on a couch or flirtatiously undressing or bathing while the viewer can kind of watch them undisturbed um, no these works show more kind of unapologetic nakedness with the women depicted displaying their vaginas and anuses and breasts to the viewer, to each other, and occasionally to a male figure who would sort of hover at the periphery of the frame. Most often, uh, this male figure would be clothed. Uh, they, the engravings have titles like Scene of Seduction Between a Debaucher and a Prostitute with Degas as a voyeur, or Painter Jester Painting on His Model, who is making up her eyes. And so he's taking um, kind of traditional relationships between the model and the artist, the prostitute, the customer, and also just a male-female relationship, and put them in his own sort of carnival-esque context of exotic dancers, jesters, and animals. Of course, being Picasso, all of them are really beautifully rendered, despite their arguably vulgar nature. The profiles are sort of rendered in one sweeping line. Uh, all the figures have his signature mismatched limbs, and they're all encapsulated with a minimal use of line. Also, considering that they are black and white images, they're incredibly dynamic, and he uses a sort of scratching uh, to create a pattern, uh, which in turn creates more depth to the to the works. Um, midway through this exhibition, a woman next to me told her friend that she didn't think it was very respectful to women. And that made me reconsider the prints that I'd just seen, as it hadn't even occurred to me to view them in this light. Maybe because the female nude isn't exactly an unusual subject matter for art, especially if uh, you're sort of depicting a more bohemian lifestyle, which seemed to always have a loose sexuality kind of associated with it. And also the, um, the sort of commonality of brothels as a uh, location for paintings to kind of take place. And I actually found the exhibition fairly amusing. You know, the idea of Picasso... At this point, an old guy doodling naked prostitutes and dancers and successfully filling our galleries with them. You know, it's not 
they're not at all subtle. You know, the, the female body is here very actively on display for us, but not in a way that is actually sexualized or sensualized. You know, their bodies aren't attractive. They're kind of ballooned out into these bizarre shapes that kind of dance around the canvas. We don't really look at them as sexual objects because of this, um, but more as, yeah, shapes that have been drawn. You know, they have completely unrealistic proportions and limbs kind of sticking out at odd angles. And so they're not sensual, they're fairly comical. And their nudity doesn't really imply an inferiority. You know, it's not a negative undressing for the male, uh, for the male gaze, but rather kind of empowering action as the men who are shown stand awkwardly and passively to one side. And so it seems more an allusion to their kind of frustrated desire and loss of libido, which obviously would come with age. And so the women are more tormenting than alluring figures, and they're completely at ease and in control of their own bodies. It's the men who fear entering this kind of sphere with them, this sexualized kind of activity. And on the museum's website, they actually say that the prints represent his, his being the artist, unfulfilled desire that doesn't allow him to develop erotic fantasies beyond drawing them. And so these engravings kind of contain all his sort of, you know, strange dreams and memories and make up these fantastical scenes that are slightly ridiculous in their exaggerated sexuality. And so regarding this, I would say that although the engravings predominantly do feature women, the exhibition is much less about their representation, but more about the artist's own view of himself, you know, the world of like sex and fun and debauchery uh, that he, you know, was previously a part of has now rendered this sort of faded black and white dreamlike vision that more than anything um, just seems kind of entertaining. You know, I would have to disagree with the woman I overheard and say that it actually, in my view, is a much healthier portrayal of women than what's found in many more traditional classical artworks. Thank you, Scarlett. Now we turn to Chloe Turner, who reviewed the representations of girls at the Museum of Brands, Packaging and Advertising in London. Hello, I'm junior girl Chloe Turner, and as well as that, I also work at the Museum of Brands, Packaging and Advertising. Here at the museum, just off famous Portobello Road in London, is a historical display of packaged products from the past 150 years. However, the Museum of Brands tells a story much richer in between the shelves. The 12,000 objects, those of toys, records and food containers, just to name a few, reveal the context of their time. The museum is immersive. You walk through a time tunnel, the objects surrounding you, as you walk through the chronological maze. There are very few labels. The interpretation is pretty much up to the visitor to attach their own stories and think about the collection in their own way. So, how does the history of girls fit into these stories? The 12,000 objects map out changes in social trends, that of culture, entertainment, design, communications, transport and fashion. The experience of girls and women are very much a part of this map. The timeline of the museum is from the Victorian era right up until the present day. Because the time tunnel is chronological, these changes are subtle, girls gradually creeping out of the domestic sphere of the late 19th century moving their way into the roaring 20s, the booming 50s and the swinging 60s. What I love most about the museum is seeing the way the visitors engage with the collection. As the museum recalls relatively modern history, even younger visitors, myself included, have something to connect to personally. The museum has an extensive collection of magazines. The issues of magazines such as Women's Way and vintage copies of Good Housekeeping are difficult to believe, 
so firmly reproducing separate spheres. As you walk past them and head to modernity, you wait for the changes to come, for women's magazines to be less stereotypical, more feminist. That change doesn't happen. But Sugar Magazine, a magazine from the early noughties, which I had long forgotten I used to have a subscription of, is there, screaming at its young girls to look pretty for boys. Two of my favourite objects in the collection are an issue of FHM and of Sue Magazine, two of the most popular lads mags of this decade. Their inclusion in the museum highlights that they are, as of late 2015, history. The magazines are now out of print, marking a significant move to the end of objectification of women in mainstream media. Another personal favourite case of the museum is right in the present day, a contemporary collection of Disney's frozen objects. At the end of the time tunnel, a tall, multi-shelved case of all manner of frozen branded objects stands tall. After a bleak history of girlhood over the past 150 years, this case is a point of positivity. Elsa, the main protagonist from Frozen, has become an idol for girls all over the world, rejecting traditional Disney-fied stories of Prince Charmings and fighting her own battles. Whether this is intentional or not as a feminist bookmark is for the visitor to interpret, but when compared to the predecessors, the difference seems clear. The Museum of Brands, Packaging and Advertising highlights, through a vast variety of objects, the changes in the history of girl culture. The values Western society once firmly held are now increasingly rejected. The Museum of Brands, Packaging and Advertising may not, on first thought, seem like a museum to interpret the history of girlhood, but in between the shelves, girl history is there. Thank you, Chloe. Next up is Lauren Payton, who recently visited the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in the United States. Here's her review. The Virginia Museum of Fine Arts is located in Richmond, Virginia. It is free to the public and hosts art from every century and region in the world. In the first gallery, the museum displays Chinese art dating as far back as the third century. Girls are depicted as goddesses, or bodhisattvas. In Buddhism, Bodhisattva is a person who has achieved the level of purity required to reach Nirvana, but who delays doing so out of commission for others. For example, there are two different sculptures of Guanyin, Bodhisattva of Mercy and Compassion. The first, created in the 10th century, is made of a copper alloy that suggests the statue was a reliquary, a container for holy relics, commissioned by an imperial patron. The second, a 17th century piece, is made of porcelain. Goddesses were also a major theme for girls in the Egyptian art gallery. Bastet, a cat-headed goddess, is the subject of a sculpture dressed as a temple dancer. There is also a sculpture of the goddess Isis, nursing her son Horus. She is ornamented with the solar disk of the goddess Hathor. African art features women as a central motif. The gallery featured art from many different cultures, including Luba, Akan, Bale, Yoruba, Igbo, and Idoma. Girls played an important role in Lupa political and social life and creation myths, and this can be seen in their sculptures. Other African art featured women in funeral tomes, ceremonial masks and gongs, and figurines. Western art was separated by time period. Art from the Renaissance period included many paintings, sculptures, and tapestries of Mary and baby Jesus. There were also stained glass pictures and sculptures of female saints. Baroque paintings displayed girls in everyday life. A beautiful example is the Flemish artist Jan Sibarec's painting of a herdswoman and her daughter. 
Another depicts the life of a Dutch servant, playfully preparing an abundant feast for dinner guests. The 19th century art shifted towards depicting girls who were royalty. An ornate example is a portrait of Lydia Shabaleski, a baroness. From the frame to what she is wearing, it is clear that her family spared no expense on this portrait. Something unique to the museum is its art education center. There, art is on display by children from three months to five years old. The Virginia Museum of Fine Arts early childhood education programs connect early learning to the museum's collections. The art featured is all created by young girls, in all mediums. The special collection exhibit on display is a photo series by Gordon Parks, the first African-American photographer hired by Time magazine. There were old magazines on display, including advertisements featuring girls and articles about desegregation and black life in the 1950s and 60s. There are powerful images of African-American girls of all ages, living at a time of extreme discord, but carrying hope for the future. These photos show the innocence of the girls, and the heavy burden of the mothers and grandmothers, while capturing their fighting spirits. Female artists were mostly found in the 20th century American gallery. There are different types of paintings and sculptures, some that display the artist's journey in life, and others that are ultra-realistic. An interesting piece called Cousin on Friday is part of a series called Days of the Week, which honors the labor of women in an extended family. The museum also has a wonderful exhibit on women in abstract expressionism. This form of art reached its peak in America in the 1950s. While art was previously thought to be a male-dominated art form, and they were subtly slighted at first in newspaper reviews and excluded from certain exhibitions, female artists began to gain prominence in this genre. In the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts exhibition, you can see pieces from many renowned female artists, including Nell Blaine, Elaine de Kooning, and Helen Frankenthaler. The museum as a whole showed what life was like for girls in many different cultures, in many different time periods. Interestingly enough, girls were depicted the most in African art. I believe that art can show us the reasons for girls' places in different cultures today. In African art, women are a central fixture. They are respected in different cultures for what they bring to society in addition to mothering, which is something that was not particularly seen in the Western art. The Virginia Museum of Fine Arts Early Childhood Program is also an interesting concept, with art exhibited by very young girls. These types of exhibits, while showing our history as a human race, empower girls to trust their instincts and be whoever they want to be, which is of utmost importance in today's society. Thank you, Lauren. Finally, here's Hillary Rose, our education advisor, with a review of the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame in the United States. Hello, this is Hillary Rose, education advisor with Girl Museum. I recently visited a wonderful museum that is all about women and girls, the Michigan Women's Historical Center and Hall of Fame, located in Lansing, Michigan. This small museum beautifully captures the importance of Michigan's women, both past and present. When I visited in March, they had just opened a brand new exhibit focused on great girls of Michigan. I was able to attend the exhibit opening, and it was wonderful to see so many people there to celebrate the importance of Michigan girls. The Great Girls in Michigan History Exhibit features nine girls from different eras who accomplished amazing things before they turned 20. The exhibit is meant to educate and inspire by telling the stories of girls like Geraldine Doyle, a girl with many artistic talents and the inspiration for the We Can Do It poster from World War II, Serena Williams, the powerful tennis player born in Saginaw, Michigan, and Myra Wolfgang, a workers' rights activist from Detroit. 
The exhibit is marvelously designed with bright colors, pictures, and interactive components for visitors of all ages. Children are able to dress up to play pretend, make their own buttons, and pose for a picture with words that make them great. Of course, these features aren't just for kids. I too made a button and then took a selfie with words such as bold, skill, and passion. The museum often hosts events for families centered on this exhibit, such as the Be a Great Girl costume party scheduled for October 15th of this year. The Great Girls exhibit will be on display through the spring of 2017. I highly recommend a visit if you are traveling to the Lansing area. The Michigan Women's Historical Center and Hall of Fame also showcases dozens of women who have made significant contributions in Michigan. The museum has been working to preserve the history of Michigan women since it was founded in 1973. Each year, both contemporary and historical women are nominated for the Hall of Fame and a few are inducted. On average, 100 women are nominated for this honor annually. This fall, 10 incredible women will be added to the Hall of Fame. I was honored to be one of the judges for this year's induction. As you might imagine, this was no easy task. As I read the stories of so many amazing women, it was nearly impossible to rank them because their accomplishments are all so important. Luckily, there were many other judges working hard to make the decisions, and the 10 inductees were selected. This year's inductees include Motown legend Diana Ross, Daisy Elliott, a civil rights advocate, and Luann K. Simon, the first female president of Michigan State University. To walk through the gallery lined with the photos and stories of these women is an inspirational experience. Because of the number of women in the Hall of Fame, the museum has outgrown its current space in a beautiful historic home. I look forward to visiting again when they find a new home to see how the exhibits and Hall of Fame grow and change. The mission of this museum is to promote the equality of women by honoring the history and celebrating the accomplishments of Michigan women. This fits very well with Girl Museum's mission as we seek to celebrate the lives of girls and promote equality. If you are also interested in supporting this mission, consider, consider visiting the Michigan Women's Historical Center and Hall of Fame or your own local women's history museum. The stories contained in the galleries are sure to inspire you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on October 30th, where we will discuss the latest girl news from around the world. Also, please help to support future production of Girl Speak by visiting our Podbean site at girlmuseum.podbean.com and clicking Support Girl Speak. Thank you and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the internet, please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.